Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet Podcast. Today's guest doesn't really need much of an introduction. He is Chris Heron, a former professional basketball player. And even more than his sports history, he is a man in long-term recovery who uses his story to inspire others into recovery and wellness. He helps students look at their substance use and we are really happy to have him here today. He has also a website called firstdayfilm.com that talks about education and toolkit and lessons for those looking to get more information about substance use disorders and recovery. Welcome, Chris. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm really excited. So you grew up, we can tell by your accent, in Fall River, Massachusetts. Give us a little flavor for what Fall River was like. You know, I grew up, my dad, um, both my mom and dad, my dad had uh, graduated the same year as my mom, um, had my brother at 18 years old, um, and then had me at 22. So we were a young family, um, grew up uh, the first few years of my life in, in a housing project. And uh, my parents worked really, really hard on themselves um, professionally to, to provide a better life for us. And, you know, my dad was a politician in the state of Massachusetts for 18 years. Um, and my mom, you know, she worked for, she retired from Verizon, um, but started with a company by the name of New England Telephone. Um, you know, four of his blue collar, you know, it was a thriving industry, mill industry, textile industry at one time. Um, like many, you know, cities along, along the coast in, in New England. Um, but it's a blue collar town and, and it's, it's rich with tradition and culture. And, you know, it, it, it definitely, you know, it, it adds a little spark to your life. And, and I believe that you know, what was ingrained in me as a little kid growing up in Fall River was, was, uh, was definitely, I was able to transition that into my recovery. So that's a great, the pieces that are positive about Fall River you got to use. That's great to hear. So let's talk a little bit about substance use. You were using when it was at the height of what I would say the Oxycontin epidemic. Is that cr true? Yeah, I mean, I started when I, I didn't really know much about it, right? So it was 1999. Um, it was really just starting to hit the headlines. It was more, it was called hillbilly heroin back then. Um, it was, you know, basically in the Kentucky, Ohio area, and then kind of skipped up into Maine, um, and then and then worked its way down. So, you know, I wasn't familiar with the drug. I wasn't familiar. I had never heard of it. Um, you know, back when I started, the people that you could get it from were um, people who were dying from cancer um, or HIV. Uh, that, was, that was 
predominantly the people who, who were being prescribed it back in 1998, 1999 when I started. So was there a big black market for it in 1998 or 99 or were you getting it predominantly through people who had legitimate prescriptions? For me, there wasn't a big black market yet, right? So it was okay. basically predominantly from people who had prescriptions, third party people who knew somebody. Um, Got it. And, you know, sadly, I was I was spending a lot of money. I was spending around twenty twenty thousand dollars a month on it. I had, you know, I had no idea how dangerous. I had no idea the effects of it. Um, you know, I'm one of those people who, unfortunately, like the feeling. You know, I, I, you know, my wife, who I've been married to for twenty three years, um, she doesn't like the feeling. Uh, I unfortunately did, and it didn't let go of me for many years. So how old were you when you f had your first moment with an opioid and your brain said, wow, I like this? Eighth grade, eighth grade. I had arthroscopic surgery on my knee as a kid. Um, you know, I just remember taking it after knee surgery um, and just walking around that night like I was, you know, feeling healed. And, and it was, uh, I think as a parent, if I saw my children, um, walking around that way, I would be very, you know, red flags would fly. Absolutely. But we didn't know that then. We did not no. know that the look on somebody's face when a substance actually answers a question way beyond what it was meant to answer, right? Of course. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think, I think it's very important, right? In your introduction, you know, I've been speaking now for 11 years. Um, and, you know, we, for years, I just think we've over, there was so much overkill on the worst day of drugs rather than the first day. You know, mm -hmm. like as educators, let's, let's, let's show our children or as parents, um, you know, what drugs do to you in, in the end rather than why you're beginning. And, and the first day is something that's been uh, unfortunately um, overlooked. And, and hopefully, you know, that's why I, I did that film on ABC and ESPN the first day, because, you know, I wanted parents to, to kind of dive in and, and look where this begins rather than how it's going to end. So give us a little bit of that. How does it begin? Let's talk about the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, it's, it's, I just remember being a young kid. I remember, you know, going out on a Friday night at 14, 15 years old and drinking and hiding beers and. You know, I just remember at the end of the night, I would always cover up my mistakes. Um, I didn't want to let my mom down. Uh, my mom, my father's an alcoholic. She, you know, our house was often out of balance because of alcoholism. Um, you know, and I didn't want my mom to, 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 to know that I was drinking my father's beers and probably her greatest fear in life. Um, but, but as a young kid, I would look and I would see people you know, the ones that didn't drink and the ones who, who didn't engage in drugs. And I was just, I was always in awe of them. I just, I was just, I couldn't believe that they could, they could do what everybody else did on a Friday night, but without it. Um, and, and to be quite frank, that's, that stayed with me in my college years. It stayed with me in my professional years. Um, you know, to be a professional athlete and watch some of your teammates uh, go out on a Friday night and drink water and have fun and laugh and be ready to train the next morning. Um, I was in awe of them as well. Um, so 
you know, it, it was an it was an inside job, as we all know, right? Um, and and you know, it wasn't until I was thirty two years old uh, until I was really willing to kind of open it up and do the inside work. Was there a moment of clarity at that thirty two, or was it a gradual building of clarity? Yeah, I think it was a gradual building of clarity. You know, like for for me, I I'm I'm a huge, um, you know. I, when I do my speaking events and I do about 250 a year, um, you know, the word rock bottom really bothers me. Um, you know, I don't know why we use it. I think it's careless. I think it's callous. I think it's, you know, aggressive. Um, you know, I think it's prevented a lot of people from intervening early. Um, you know, people want to wait until, you know, the arrest happens or the family's gone. Um, you know, or, or the scholarship is taken and, and the opportunity is lost. Uh, so, so for me, it was a gradual, you know, I like to say all the things that happened in my life um, led me to that moment. And was it a powerful moment or was it a dawning? Can you yeah, tell I mean, us? Listen, you know, my wife was eight months pregnant when I went to treatment. You know, I just suffered my fourth overdose. Um, you know, and at 45 days sober, I thought I was able to emotionally handle going home and, and assisting my wife through the through through childbirth. Um, and unfortunately, unfortunately, I didn't. Right. Unfortunately, I relapsed and, and I wasn't emotionally ready to handle anything. Um, and as I sat in that hospital room and I looked at my family, my young family, a, you know, a 31 year old wife who just gave birth to a newborn. Uh, our son Drew and and my children, you know, I was absent, right? Like I was, I I had to go back to treatment. You know, I wasn't going to be around, and you know, I I talked myself into um, that self pity, and 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 I went out and I drank that afternoon, and and then uh, jumped back into the world of heroin. Um, but but fortunately, my wife gave me an ultimatum, and I went back to treatment that night. Um, and that's when the process began, right? That's when, you know, I was willing to, to battle my self-esteem and my self-worth. And, and, you know, rather than following the crowd and, and try, trying to fit into the majority, you know, I became one of the guys in the center that was doing the work that nobody else wanted to do. That's great to know. And there are always those people. There are people anywhere you go that are taking the different road than mm. the one that leads to difficulty. Sure. We can find them if we look for them. It's that we don't often look for them in those moments. I've been blessed with old timers, right? When I first got sober, when I first got sober, I had an old timer walk up to me in a meeting and I had my phone in my hand and I was kind of looking at it quietly um, in the back of the meeting. And an old timer walked up to me and said, you know, how proud would your children be if they knew their daddy was staring at his phone during a meeting that um, is helping, helping them become a family again. And, you know, as I tell people in my wellness center all the time, you know, when you go to group and you have that opportunity, you take your family with you. You know, you take your family with you and you present and you sit in that room and you work like your children or your parents or your siblings are behind you watching. I love that. I look at 
substance use disorders from a family lens anyway, but I don't look at quite it that powerfully. I look at the idea that when families get on board with their own recovery, they can influence the possibilities of somebody else accepting help or even having that moment of, I want to be better for my family. I think when sure. families can start out with that process, the person who's struggling can catch up. So that's where I start. I don't start with let's let's separate. Let's start with connecting yeah. ways that are healthy. Well, I, I think I think families have been completely underserved when it came to when it's come to recovery and, and the process. Um, you know, I think HIPAA and I think the anonymity that's that's been around recovery for so long has allowed treatment centers to close the door and say, come back in 30 days. Um, and that's, that's tragic, right? So when I opened my wellness centers, the model was going to change for me. Um, you know, the families come, they're part of it. And, you know, they're part of our addiction. They should be part of our recovery. And, you know, they, you know, we've opened our campus up to, to families and, you know, they're a huge part of not only their loved one's life, other other members of the community to the guests that we have great i love that so let's talk about your advocacy work because i would imagine that your advocacy work fuels your personal recovery and your personal recovery fuels your advocacy work can you tell us a little bit about that yeah i mean you know so i've been speaking for a little over a decade right and and in this world if it's you know public speaking um is a, is a word of mouth business. And, you know, if you don't go in there and you're not passionate about it and you're not connecting with the children or adults in front of you, um, you're not gonna be asked to come back or, or, or to get another opportunity. So, you know, to do this work for a decade has been, has been something that's special for me. Um, you know, I have an unbelievable team that just has, has the same mission as me. Um, you know, and from that, you know, the public speaking turned into, you know, my foundation, which is Parent Project, which has given over $7 million in treatment scholarships over the last 10 years. Woohoo! I love yeah. hearing that. I love Definitely. hearing that. Yeah. So... Yeah, we've placed 20, I think, 27 or 2,800 in treatment in the last 10 years, 2,700. So... You know the work we do is extremely um i'm proud of so i you know i think i think my advocacy work whether it's speaking in front of kids or you know i just came out of a group at my wellness center and and sat there with 24 guests um i mean it's all fuel for recovery it's all fuel and i love it that you call them guests because they are mm -hmm. guests they are there mm -hmm. voluntarily they should be yep. treated like honored guests, frankly, and that isn't always the case in our recovery centers. Yeah. What differs when you you had been to treatment, you had experienced it from the inside out. What was the thing that when you opened your own program of wellness, what did you want to bring that was potentially different from what you'd experienced? You know, I mean, from what I experienced, I just want to provide what people say and they don't, right? Like uh, we. It's like the bells and whistles that they all put up on their websites, but when you get there, it's not, it's not, it's not part of the program. Um, 
you know, first and foremost, I'm a man in recovery, so there has to be some integrity. Yeah. And, and right. you know, I, I have an unbelievable responsibility when family members pull onto this property and drop their loved ones off. Um, you know, their moms, their dads, their grandparents. I mean, here now we have two, two men who are 74 and older. So, um, you know, um, talk about a, uh, a proud moment is to, to, to watch a 74 year old man walk on this property and say, I'm not done. I want to take another swing at recovery is, is a beautiful thing. Um, but you know, it's yoga seven days a week. It's meditation seven days a week. It's guided. It's, we have a personal trainer, um, that works you out. Uh, five days a week. Um, we have a nutritionist on staff. We do um, an acupuncturist that's here three days a week, a massage therapist three days a week. And we do some hyperbaric chamber therapy as well. So, you know, I don't, I don't really know what everybody else is doing. I just, I'm proud of what we're doing. Interesting. Yeah. I can see where you're using those tools. I can understand how they would impact stabilization of somebody who was not feeling particularly stable when they walked in your doors right well i mean name a, name me a treatment center that you know is really tracks sleep and, and really wants to follow sleep patterns right mm -hmm. because when are we most you know like that's 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 kind of like the game planning that i believe in in this is you know maybe that person did not sleep well that guest didn't sleep well for the first four days. So maybe they're better served to meet with their life coach later in the afternoon than early, you know, and, and you have a window of opportunity here. And I know you guys are used to high wealth clients, but you know, what we provide, we could be high wealth. You know, we, what we, what we offer here, we could definitely bump up our price range. Um, but, but you don't. Well, no, I'm just into having people longer. Right. The, average, the average, length, average length to stay here is 90 days. And, you know, I have and what a would you like to see? What would you like to see? What do you think would really do people well with a, somebody coming in with a, you know, an opioid addiction of long standing? Well, I mean, it's just I think time matters. Right. And, and so the price point for us, you know, we get we get to have people here for 90 days and yeah, then we great. transition. And then we transition them to our transition house, which is right down the street. And, you know, we, every person that's come through this program that has transitioned to what we call the Lincoln house and our guests there, we're 68% of them are sober today, long-term. That's phenomenal oh. statistics in this yeah. field. Yes, I do not mm -hmm. understand that. So I want to reel you back a little bit. Did your fame or your you know, celebrity enhance your ability to get substances and, and not be caught? Um, I, I don't think it, no. I mean, I, I was, you know, when I was in college, it was probably, um, it's tough to say, you know, Boston College, they had a very strict program, mm -hmm. right? So they had a three strike, you're out um approach um then i transferred to fresno state and they had a therapeutic approach like we're going to give you we're going to send you to treatment we're going to have outpatient we're going to have therapy um you know both served a purpose in my life um but you know i don't think that 
if anything, it just hurt, right? The, the, the fact that I was who I was and, and I was accomplishing what I was accomplishing at that, at that young age probably made people a little uneasy to approach me. You know, I was, mm -hmm. I wasn't as, I wasn't as approachable because of my status and who I was at a young age. Um, you know, but then I, you know, my professional, my professional life, I was, you know, I was, um, you know, shooting heroin, you know, I mean, I was, I was, I was, you know, I was at a point where, you know, I was, I took a chance every day at dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if it had been 10 years later in the fentanyl world, you might have, we don't know. Yeah. Right. When I overdosed in 2000, yeah. yeah, when I overdosed in 2004 publicly, I was arrested in, in a parking lot um, in 2004. The headline in the Boston Globe was, what a shame. Um, mm. You know, so, so I, I think we've made significant progress. I don't think that would be the headline today. Um, mm. And, mm. you know, who knows where I would be, but, you know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful that I missed that window with, with fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I get that. This work heals, it motivates, it inspires, but it also breaks my heart on a regular mm -hmm. basis. What about this work breaks your heart? I think, I think here we, we have so, we're so connected. Um, we're a very small community, right? I, I'd never go over the number 24. So, you know, it's very intimate. It's very private. We, we get to know one another on very real, transparent, raw levels. Um, so, you know, when you see somebody, when you see a family show up with children and they're just all in, you know, and, and you know, as I tell the guests at my center sometimes, you know, your children wouldn't be late to group if they, were, if they knew it was gonna help their dad. They, they'd show up early and sometimes families want it more. Um, but to get to know the families and really kind of see that glimmer in, in, in their eye, and then when it gets taken away, it's, it's difficult. It's really difficult. And, you know, I have a mom that I'm close with. She's, she's an ICU nurse and, you know, she's buried three boys, you know, three, three, three of her children. She has no children left. Um, you know, so it's, it's stuff, it's obviously that, that, that really hits you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to leave this on a mm -hmm. less heavy note, what's the one thing you would like to leave our audience with today? What's a, what's a message you would like to leave? Yeah. You know, I just, I think it's, it's so important, right? It's so important to intervene early. It's so important to jump out in front of it. And, you know, when you have that instinct of wanting to help, help, right? I think so many families hesitate. I think so many families kind of hope and wish it, wish it away. Um, you know, most families, when I, the families that I deal with, you know, when they're, when they call, I say, you can't go back, right? Like you've made the call. Your gut, your instinct is telling you, keep going after recovery, chase recovery, do what we can to get them the help that you want so badly for them. Um, you know, so it's, there's so many people out here that suffer longer than is necessary. 
I agree. And there's still hope. It's changing. Yeah, isn't of it? course. There's, there's tons of hope. Listen, sobriety gives you an edge in life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm better at every facet of my life because of my sobriety. And, and it's given me an edge. And I don't think, unfortunately, because the stigma that's attached to addiction, nobody really wants to say what sobriety does and what recovery does for people. And, and you sit me down with anyone and I can look them in the eye and I can tell them, I believe I have an edge on them because of my sobriety and, 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 what, and what it's given me and continues to give me on a daily basis. So, you know, I was 14 years ago, my family was on food stamps and I was shooting heroin, taking a chance at dying every single day. And, you know, 14 years later, I have a front row seat to watching lives rebuild and, and children become part of something special. And, uh, and I'm very fortunate for that. That's beautiful. Thank you, Chris Heron. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And for our audience, thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.